Welcome to Everyday Wellness Podcast. I'm your host, nurse practitioner, Cynthia Thurlow. This podcast is designed to educate, empower, and inspire you to achieve your health and wellness goals. My goal and intent is to provide you with the best content and conversations from leaders in the health and wellness industry each week and impact over a million lives. Today, I had the honor of connecting with Dr. Morgan Levine, who is an assistant professor of pathology at Yale University School of Medicine. Her research focuses on the science of biological aging, specifically using bioinformatics to quantify the aging process and test how lifestyle and pharmaceutical interventions alter the rate of aging. She is the author of the book, True Age, which I had the honor of reading earlier this year. Today, we dove deep into her background, the role of biologic aging and epigenetics, the impact of lifestyle, how our cells age, the role of cellular senescence and zombie cells, why aging is considered to be a disease state, research on women and menopause, the impact of genes, especially APOE, why our number of fat cells are determined early in our lives, blue zones, fasting and hormesis, exercise and sleep all of which contribute to how we age. I hope you will enjoy this conversation as much as I did recording it. It's so nice to connect with you, Dr. Levine. I've been looking forward to interviewing you and talking about your new book. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. So I think everyone's backgrounds are so interesting. Did you always know that you wanted to go into research and study the kind of complex intricacies of the aging process? I know that I, when I was reading your book, I know about your parents and your background, but listeners would probably enjoy to hear a little bit about your story. Yeah. So I don't think I always knew I wanted to be a scientist or go into research here. I was very kind of worried about the aging process growing up because I had older parents, particularly my father was much older. He was in his mid fifties when I was born. Um, So I was always worried about his aging and I saw aging at a very young age. And it wasn't until probably I got to college and actually found that there is a scientific field who's actually interested in, you know, can you do anything about the aging process? Not necessarily that we're going to all live forever, but can you live a healthier life for as long as possible and really postpone the onset of all these diseases. So once that became a possibility, then I was kind of hooked and felt like I had to work in that field and make it my mission to understand it. And it's interesting because I think on a lot of levels, people think about anti-aging. They think it's all this physical, you know, this kind of phenotype, what we look like, what our hair looks like, what our skin looks like. And in your book, you're really speaking to kind of distinguishing between chronologic versus biologic aging. And so let's start the conversation there specifically about the role of epigenetics. And so this is definitely a topic that my listeners are familiarized with, but understanding that the way we lead and live our lives has a large impact on whether or not we are susceptible to certain types of diseases. Certainly in cardiology, I saw it ran the gamut, you know, from being you know, head to toe vascular path, you know, cerebral vascular disease, cardiovascular disease, peripheral vascular disease, diabetes, all of these things. But let's talk a little bit about the differences, the distinguishing characteristics of both of those. Yeah. So I think when you ask someone their age, or they think about how old am I, they always think their chronological age, but we know you can just see from everyone around you that people age at different rates. And We don't know exactly what's driving aging, but at least things like epigenetics seem to potentially play a very important role in that we can actually look at someone's epigenetic profile and this tracks very well with age, but even among people who are the same age, it seems to be very predictive of who's at risk for various diseases. And the reason we think that is, so epigenetics can actually be very important in just kind of setting the state of a cell. So I almost think of it like the operating system of a cell. It makes, even though all your cells have the same DNA, it kind of gives them all their different types. So skin cells, brain cells are different because they're epigenetics, but we know it also changes with age. So it sets, it differentiates a young skin cell from an old skin cell or a young brain cell from an old brain cell. And so it's responsive to our behaviors, the environment, but also just kind of some intrinsic factors. 
But we think that if we could actually slow what we call epigenetic age, we would postpone the onset of different kind of chronic diseases we see rise with age. Yeah, it's really interesting because a lot of, you know, what I speak to in, you know, kind of my realm is hermetic stress and mitochondrial health. And this feeds directly into that understanding that a lot of the choices we make in terms of how well we sleep and do we exercise and are we eating an anti-inflammatory diet and are we eating too frequently all can positively or negatively impact the way that we age. And, and I would agree with you. One of the things that I got particularly good at being in the hospital was like looking at a patient's chart and looking at the patient and sometimes being surprised, like, wow, that person looks really good for X age or wow, that person looks 15 years older and having worked in the inner city and then in the suburbs, saw a wide cross-section of individuals, different races, different ethnicities. And I was always humbled. Like there were always the outliers. I was like, whatever they're doing, I want to make sure I capitalize on. So when we're talking about the aging process, you do mention in the book there, you know, how do cells age? You know, what are some of the ways that we look at this? And I know telomeres are kind of a hot topic. I know, especially with prolonged fasting, people are always interested, you know, does this improve my telomere length? So let's talk a little bit about telomeres, what they are and how they're impacted during the process of becoming chronologically older. Yeah. So telomeres were, so actually this idea was kind of discovered decades ago by someone called Leonard Hayflick. He didn't actually discover telomeres, but the idea was that cells in a dish had a limited lifespan they could only divide a certain number of times, and then they would undergo this kind of arrested state that we have come to know as cellular senescence. Then it was discovered years later that actually what the reason for this is that as cells divide, they're basically losing length on these telomere regions. And then once they reach this kind of short, kind of critical point, the cells basically undergo, they have genomic instability, and they kind of arrest because it's actually a evolutionary mechanism to prevent things like cancer because the cells are kind of dysfunctional at this stage. So there's been some studies showing that telomere length declines with aging. And there are people who use it kind of as a biomarker of aging. Actually, it's almost been overshadowed by the epigenetic aging because that actually seems to be a better biomarker. But there's some correlation between the two. We also see as cells divide the epigenetic age also tends to increase. But yeah, so I don't think we know exactly besides telomerase treatment, which actually adds back the telomere, what actually can maintain telomere length. But there's some, there's a lot of interest in this area as well. Yeah, I bet. And I think that, you know, from just my experience in talking about these things with my own patients and clients, trying to explain what cellular senescence really is. And, you know, then the the conversation usually lends to zombie cells and, yeah. you know, are these good or bad? And my understanding, and certainly correct me if I'm wrong, is that they can be pro-inflammatory. So this can be something over time that can be potentially damaging to a cell. And so has that been your experience, obviously deep vested into the research yourself and, and writing a book in this area? Yeah. So the ability of cells to undergo senescence is a short-term benefit, right? It's going to prevent that cell, if there's something wrong with it, from being prone to becoming cancer, so tumorigenic. That being said, over the long term, this isn't a great long-term solution because these cells tend to be, as you said, very pro-inflammatory. So they're spitting out all of these kind of pro-inflammatory cytokines, and they're almost immune to death. So they're, they can't be killed very easily. So they're just sitting there in your resident tissue, producing out and actually probably causing nearby cells to undergo damage or be more prone to senescence or things like that. Um, So yeah, in the long run, they're actually problematic and people think they might be a major driver of aging and the inflammation that we see increase with aging. So you talk in the book a great deal about why aging is a disease state. And so I think this is an important distinction. I think people just assume aging just happens. And so I think it's much more complicated, nuanced than that. There's obviously things we can be exposed to in our environment that can accelerate this process. It was interesting. I was listening to a podcast with Peter Atia talking about cardiovascular disease. 
and talking about the role of you know tobacco use is a good example. I think that's one that's probably tangible for everyone. I think our generations, there's probably a lot less smokers, but when I think about my grandparents, my great-grandparents, everyone smoked. But let's talk a little bit about aging as a disease state. How, you know, how does that come about? Why should we shift the perspective to thinking about it as a disease as opposed to something that just randomly occurs? Because I, I think for many people, if you talk to them, again, it goes back to the physicality. Oh, I don't want to get wrinkles. I notice my skin is sagging and I'm like, oh, there's so much more that's under the hood that's ongoing that's kind of creating this process to accelerate. Yeah. So most of the diseases that people are worried about getting. So heart disease, Alzheimer's disease, diabetes, cancer, these are all diseases of aging and aging actually ends up being the number one contributor to these diseases. Again, like you said, it's not about wrinkles. It's not about how you look, but really it's about kind of driving these pathologies that people are really, you know, you could ask anyone, no one wants to get any of these diseases. So the idea is if we actually were to tackle the aging process itself, we would prevent the onset probably of multiple diseases simultaneously, instead of kind of how our current medical system is kind of going after one at a time. So can we cure cancer or how do we you know, prevent heart disease? Really the truth is to actually look at aging as its own kind of pathology and tackle that to try and keep people in a younger state for longer. So I think the hard thing about, you know, when we talk about calling aging itself a disease, it can also stigmatize aging. Um, So this idea of, oh, you're over a certain age, you now have a disease is a problem. But I think if we kind of disassociate the kind of physical or biological aging process from the chronological, basically, we, you know, it would be amazing if you could be 80 that being 80 is not a disease, but it's that kind of biology that we want. If you could keep that healthier, younger for longer, then you could be 80 and it would not be kind of quote pathological versus the opposite, which in our society it tends to be. Yeah. And it's interesting. I had uh, Dr. Amy Killen on in, in the fall and she was talking about women specific to women and talking about menopause as an example of a disease state. And she was saying how that can sometimes be very controversial because again, to your point, people hear that and they feel stigmatized. And and she was saying, no, I want people to understand that with proper lifestyle changes, HRT, if that's appropriate for you, et cetera, that doesn't have to be your destiny. And one of the things in your book that really stood out for me specific to women was that in the research, women with older epigenetic ages tended to experience menopause earlier and surgical menopause tended to accelerate epigenetic aging. So there are a lot of women that are middle-aged that listen to this podcast. And when I read that, I was like, wow, because I see a lot of thin women, mm-hmm. thin meaning healthy, not anorexic or body dysmorphic, thin women going into menopause earlier, like late forties. And we know the average age here in the United States is 51, but I'm also seeing a lot of my overweight, obese patients going through a little later And so this is very telling. So we're assuming that thin person is quote unquote healthier, but in essence, they may have this epigenetic changes that are occurring again, below the surface that are driving an earlier ovarian failure or contributing to this loss of fertility and, you know, peak peak fertility years. Let me be clear. I think most women in their late forties and early fifties don't want to be thinking about being fertile. However, (laughs) this was really surprising for me because I think there's this thought process that, you know, you know, you go to menopause at 47, 48, not really a big deal. And this is causing me to look very differently at my patient population, the clients that I work with. Yeah. So there does seem to be, because of the data we had, we couldn't necessarily say which one was causing the other one. So whether having an accelerated epigenetic aging would push people into early menopause or whether the early menopause would just set off this kind of acceleration of epigenetic aging. It seemed potentially like the latter might be more likely because of what we saw with the surgical menopause. So you know, this obviously epigenetic aging is probably not causing people to undergo surgical menopause, but we did see an acceleration of aging then. And it's interesting. It's women have kind of this longevity advantage over men, but it seems 
to kind of even out a little bit more after women go through menopause. So they had this benefit, but then after menopause, they kind of catch up, maybe not all the way, but a little bit to men, not in a race that you want to win though. No. And I, I think for a lot of uh, women in particular, they've, they've been insulin sensitive their entire lives. And then all of a sudden, as they're getting closer to the tail end of perimenopause, the 10 to 15 years preceding menopause, all of a sudden they're becoming a little sarcopenic. They're not sleeping as well. They suddenly start becoming a little insulin resistant. There's so many shifts that are going on in their bodies, not just a hormone piece, but so many multi-system issues that are contributing to this loss of metabolic health. And I think for every woman that's listening, this is where you have to be working with a practitioner that's going to be able to counsel you on, is it appropriate for you to consider hormone replacement therapy? Is this appropriate for you? If not, that's certainly that we can respect that. I have a lot of listeners that are, as an example, breast cancer survivors. It's, it's just not in, they're not able at this point in time to be able to take HRT, but understanding that women are protected on a lot of levels before they go into menopause. And from what I have read and spoken to experts, it's this loss of estrogen signaling that can drive a lot of these acceleration of, of inflammation, oxidative stress in the body. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, for some women, it will be the right choice, right? It depends a lot on timing and how long you're doing it. But yeah, I think if it's the right situation offsets some of these changes that we see. Have you guys heard about a bioactive whole food on the market with 5,000 published research studies backing it? When my oldest son needed to go on antibiotics a few months ago, I discovered Armour Colostrum and the benefits for him and his recovery from being on antibiotics have been instrumental in me now recommending this to my dairy non-sensitive patients and clients. Armour's Colostrum strengthens immunity ignites metabolism, fortifies gut health, promotes hair growth and skin radiance, and powers fitness performance and recovery. My son has mentioned to me over and over again how great his gut feels, how he has improved his digestion and gut function as well. Colostrum is a rich, exclusive source of immunoglobulins or antibodies that optimize our immune defense even during cold and flu season. And we know that mucosal barriers house over 80% of our body's immune cells, including including the antibodies IgG and SIG-A. And these immunoglobulins bind and intercept harmful particles like viruses, bacteria, and toxins, blocking them from crossing into the barriers into our bloodstream. And Armour's colostrum contains the highest levels of SIG-A and IgG to ensure your most fortified first line of protection. It's sustainably sourced, and it's important to know that you want to mix colostrum only with cold liquids or foods or dry scoop it into your mouth. This is also great for the oral microbiome. And we've worked out a special offer for my everyday wellness community where you can receive 15% off your first order. Go to tryarmra.com slash Cynthia15 or enter Cynthia15 to get 15% off your first order. That's T-R-Y-A-R-M-R-A.com slash Cynthia15. You definitely want to check it out. Do you find yourself struggling to get a good night's sleep? If so, you may be dealing with a hidden mineral deficiency. It is not at all uncommon in perimenopause and menopause to deal with sleep challenges. And we know that one of many contributory reasons for poor sleep can be a reduction in specific minerals that help regulate sleep quality, including magnesium, which is involved in GABA, which is our body's main calming neurotransmitter. We also know that we need potassium to create melatonin. And this is a hormone that is a master antioxidant, but is also utilized to help induce sleep. We also think about things like zinc, which can balance excitatory neurotransmitters like glutamate. And if it's overactive, meaning if your glutamate levels are too high, it can prevent your brain from becoming more relaxed and inducing sleep. And lastly, selenium increases both our deep sleep and sleep duration. All these minerals matter a lot for sleep and any imbalances or deficits can have a major impact on the quality of sleep you get each night. And that's why I love Beam Minerals. They offer a full spectrum mineral supplement that gives you every essential mineral your body needs 
in the right doses, all in a highly absorbable liquid form. All you do is take a shot of bean minerals about an hour before bed. Don't worry, it tastes like water and you'll replenish all of your body's minerals in about 30 seconds and give your brain what it needs for deep restorative sleep. I've been using this product over the last several months. I've really been impressed with the improvement in my sleep metrics, which I like to share on social media with my followers. And if you want a simple way to improve your sleep, head over to www.beaminerals.com and use code Cynthia for 20% off your first order. That's www.beaminerals.com and use code Cynthia for 20% off your first order. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think, again, it goes back to, you know, when I finished my training a thousand years ago, it was right when the Women's Health Initiative was being published in 2002. And although I worked very safely in cardiology, didn't have to have those discussions, I do recall many family members, many clinicians that were really shifting their, their practice based on the outcome data from Women's Health Initiative. And I think, again, it begs the conversation with every woman that's listening or man that's listening making sure you're having that conversation with your doctor, your nurse practitioner. Now, there are specific types of genes. You mentioned a few of these in the book that we know can be implicated in longevity and also chronic disease. And I think one that's very recognizable is ApoE, apolipoprotein E. I've been tested for this. Let's talk about this because I think there's a lot of misinformation that's out there. There's a lot of good information that's out there, but let's help kind of clear up some of the misinformation so that people will understand what it puts you at risk for. Yeah. So this is actually, so when, you know, the human genome project came about, they're like, we're going to discover all these genes and be able to cure disease because we know all the genes that cause it. There hasn't been a ton that came out, but this one gene, so APOE is the one that kind of has had this big effect that was found from all this data. There's three different kind of alleles. So you can have APOE2, 3, or 4. And of course, we have two copies, so you can have a mix of those. The one that seems the most detrimental or kind of high risk is APOE4. So people who have a 4, 4, who we call homozygous E4, have much higher risk of things like Alzheimer's disease. I think you know, it's hard to estimate, but it's about, I think they say a 12 fold or more risk of developing Alzheimer's. And ironically, it actually seems to be even worse for women who are 4-4. The majority of the population are uh, E3. So most people are 3-3. Being a 3-4 increases your risk a little bit, but not nearly as much as a 4-4. And then actually, there's a few lucky people, it's fairly rare, who are 2s. So 2-2 or 2-3. And they actually seem to have the lowest risk for everyone. So in addition to Alzheimer's, it also seems to be a risk factor for different cardiovascular disease. APOE is a, a lipid transport. So we're not entirely sure about the exact mechanisms, but it's some kind of something to do with lipid regulation that seems to be maybe driving risk for Alzheimer's and cardiovascular disease as well. Now, if someone's listening and they want to ask their internist primary care provider for this test... Do you typically just ask for the APOE? So this is something I didn't, I don't order, which is why I'm the impetus for the question. Is it as simple as going to LabCorp or Quest with an order and they can just draw it and then you and the provider can have a conversation or is it more nuanced than that? Yeah, I think, I don't know if they offer it, but I would imagine they would, or any kind of genetic counselor could do this. I know 23andMe actually also will measure will tell you if which alleles you have um, if you're three 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 four and report back. But again, I think if people are four four, it would be beneficial for them to talk to either a genetic counselor or practitioner. Twenty three me will give you <laughs> some information, but not that much in terms of understanding what this means. And it may just be that you do have different interventions or lifestyles to try and prevent it. So Alzheimer's disease has no treatment right now, but there are things that people can do potentially to prevent or reduce their risk. So things like exercise are important, potentially maybe diet or, you know, depending on what your cholesterol triglyceride levels are. So maybe some sort of lipid lowering medication would be important if you're a 4-4. Yeah, no. And it's interesting. The reason why I was asking, I know that my functional medicine doc has already tested me and I am a 2-2 
Oh, wow. That's a whole, yeah, I'm one of those special people, but I do know that within my family, there are a lot of heated discussions about do people want to be tested? Do they not want to be tested? 23andMe, I think is valuable, but you have to work with someone that can actually look at the data and know how to interpret it. There are, I think when I first got 23andMe done, it was probably 10 years ago. And from what I understand now, they're they're not giving you as much raw data as they did before. But I think as, and much to your point that, you know, working with someone that is able to kind of give you good counseling and good information and an understanding that even if you are a homozygous for ApoE4, that doesn't per se mean that you will definitely go on to develop these disorders and diseases. Now you started speaking to some of the things that we can do. So let's twist this and make it, you know, kind of have a proactive bent. What are some of the things that we can do as individuals that can have a large net benefit? You do spend a good amount of time in the book talking about these things that will help slow the aging process and do it in a way that's, you know, not focused as much on the aesthetics piece. And and certainly let me be clear. I think all of us want to take care of ourselves, but understanding that it's on a much more substantive level inside our bodies, as opposed to outside our bodies. Yeah. I think, you know, people get kind of upset, right. When we talk about this, because it's, there is no quick fix. It's not that we have a drug or I have some magical supplement that if you take this, you're going to have slow aging. It really comes back to the things that people probably already know and maybe don't want to hear. So regular physical activity, having eating, you know, whole food diet, getting good, not just quantity of sleep, but also making sure you have good sleep quality. Stress is a major driver of aging. So obviously, lots of people have stressful jobs, but there's also some kind of psychology about how you approach and look at stress, which actually could change how it kind of impacts you physically. And then the normal things, right? Don't smoke. Smoking is probably the thing that if you want to age yourself fastest that you would do. And then there's some debate on in terms of drinking, whether moderate drinking is okay versus no drinking. I think right now the science is saying any alcohol might be uh, detrimental, but again, it's a balance, right? People can pick and choose how much different things matter and what is worth to them. So. Yeah, I think that's a good point that, you know, for each one of us, we have to find lifestyle choices and changes that are sustainable. I think a lot of people with good intention will, you know, start intermittent fasting, they'll try to go to bed earlier, they'll stop smoking, they'll start exercising. And then two weeks later, they're like, this is too much. It's, I can't make all these changes all at once. So let's start kind of with the nutrition piece. You do speak to Mediterranean plant-based diets being beneficial. We talk about the blue zones. Maybe we can unpack what that is. I I think a lot of people perhaps are familiarized with the terminology, but where in in the world are these blue zones and what is the research suggesting and sharing with us about these individuals and their lifestyle? Yeah. So there are a number of blue zones all over the world. These are places where you have kind of pockets of exceptional longevity. So much higher than you would expect, just random chance. Uh, There's one in the United States in Loma Linda, California. Other ones are places like Okinawa in Japan, and then Italy and Greece. And basically, people have tried to understand what it is about these regions. And again, it's not a randomized controlled trial where you put, you know, 100 people in each of these cities and see what happens to them. But they do tend to share some characteristics. So people are very kind of physically active. They do a lot of walking. They're not sitting all day, unfortunately, like a lot of people in the US are. They tend to eat, you know, very much kind of whole foods, not highly processed foods. There's a lot of talk that they only eat kind of vegetarian or vegan, which is not entirely true. There is some kind of meat and dairy consumption, but it's not to the level probably seen in in the United States and similar countries. And yeah, they tend to live substantially longer. And it's not just genetics because they follow people who have left these areas. And when they move to a different place, they actually tend to look more like have the longevity of the place they moved to. So There does seem to be something about the community and the lifestyle that's kind of driving this. 
It's really interesting because when I was reading the book and kind of thinking about places in the world where these individuals are found, they tend to be more physically active. They're probably not eating a hyper palatable, highly processed diet. They're probably getting more sleep. They're just genuinely seemingly taking really good care of themselves. And, you know, there was one concept in the book, and I'm probably going to mangle this, the concept of hara hachi bunmi, which in Japanese belly is 80% full, you know, thinking that Perhaps these are people that just intrinsically, they slow down when they start to feel a little bit full. Whereas I think for a lot of us, we don't sit down and savor meals. We're in a rush. It's this kind of hedonistic existence where we can get anything we want, any time of the day delivered to our house. I mean, Uber Eats is like one of the worst inventions in the world. My teenagers get upset when I say that, but I think it's worth mentioning. But this concept you mentioned in the book, which makes a lot of sense, I'm sure that that's a contributor. Like I have friends who are from those areas in the world and they definitely are conscientious. Like they don't overeat. If they're full, they're done. They don't feel a sense of obligation to finish large meals if they don't want it. They're people that are satiated and full with a lot less food on their plate, or maybe they're more conscientious about the way that they're actually eating. Yeah. And I think mealtime too, there is not just about sitting down and consuming and just continually consuming throughout the day as well, right? I think it's a social event and they eat kind of to fuel their lives, but they don't just constantly kind of look for the next meal again and again. And they probably are what we would consider maybe very, very moderately calorically restricted. So they're eating probably just under their kind of metabolic needs, but in a way that actually their bodies benefit from this and it, it can kind of have this hormetic effect to actually improve their overall health. Yeah. And I think the role of hormesis, you know, this beneficial stress and the right amount at the right time is so important. And it's a fantastic segue into talking about caloric restriction, intermittent fasting, time-restricted eating. What is the research showing us about this kind of overall prevailing concept as it pertains to the aging process? Yeah. So caloric restriction is the by far longest studied intervention in aging. It was discovered century ago and it first in rodents and really did show that if you mildly restrict calories, that at least for most of them, it does give this increase in lifespan, but also seems to improve what we would consider health span. So they're healthier, longer as well, not just living longer. Then it's been studying a lot of other species and again, seems to have similar kind of benefits. Granted, the amount of caloric restriction probably differs. So even among different mouse strains, the same level of caloric restriction can actually be beneficial for some, neutral for others, and even detrimental for others. So it might there's probably some kind of genetic tuning about how much caloric restriction um, one would have. And then recently, there people started to study this in humans. So there are people who've been caloric restricting, you know, just by voluntarily for years and they, they think there's some evidence that maybe they're a little healthier, but then there, there was actual clinical trial called the calorie trial that they actually enrolled people. And the data does suggest that when you look at kind of different physiological markers, that these people are healthier than when they started or healthier compared to the control group. But I think the hard thing is knowing how much is the right amount. And it's not deprivation. It's not a massive amount of caloric restriction. It's And it's probably for most people, just the absence of overconsumption that's going to be the most beneficial. So even if you can eat just a smidge under your normal kind of caloric needs, it's going to be beneficial probably. Well, I find for a lot of patients, even the concept of not snacking, like even if you do nothing else other than just have those three meals a day, the not snacking in between, not drink, drinking, you know, fatty coffees and really sugary sodas and eating candy bars. I mean, just removing those things alone might be enough for a lot of people to garner benefits. And so there's very much this continuum of intermittent fasting. Obviously, this is something I talk a lot about on the podcast and because I'm a female and I think it's important to distinguish that, you know, men and women need to fast differently. So whether it's intermittent fasting or caloric restriction or time-restricted feeding, understanding that there's a time and a place and times in which we should do that. There's a lot of, certainly a lot of people, I think about Sachin Panda, I just literally was listening to a podcast with him this morning with Dr. Huberman. 
and, you know, really diving into his current research. I'm like a third of the way through a three and a half hour podcast, very depth involved, but I will make, I will get through there. The one thing that I thought was interesting in particular to kind of fasting and kind of a pain point for a lot of listeners is weight loss resistance. And one of the things you kind of touch on in the context of the book and calorie restriction is talking about fat cells. So adipocytes and how a lot of this is determined a little bit by genetics, but also it's predetermined by the time we're an adolescent. I have all teenagers at home. So I think about this in that context, then a lot of the choices and things that we're doing as younger people have a large net impact on, well, how our fat cells grow or don't grow you know, are they hypertrophied? Understanding that if we're overfed and we're continuously eating and we're overfeeding ourselves, that we're creating a lot of inflammation, oxidative stress, toxicities. What has been your experience when you're looking at the research specific to adipocytes and, and fat oxidation and fat loss for these populations of individuals when we're looking at the aging process? Yeah, I think it's actually an interesting place that will probably be able to answer this question really well in the coming decades, right? Because, you know, childhood obesity was not even a thing, you know, in some of, you know, the generations that are now older, but for more recent generations, you know, childhood obesity has kind of exploded. And it's not even clear necessarily what that means for how these individuals will age, but we can imagine that it's probably going to be detrimental. So obesity, particularly kind of central adiposity we know is highly pro-inflammatory and tends to be highly associated with kind of this accelerated aging phenotype. So even if we look at things like epigenetic age or any of these kind of aging measures, obesity is a major, probably second only maybe to smoking, a major driver of kind of this accelerated aging phenotype across different organ systems. So you can measure it in blood, We've looked in liver, you can measure it actually in adipocytes, and it does tend to show this very accelerated aging phenotype. But yeah, it's not clear. I mean, the both amazing and sometimes scary thing about our bodies are we are dynamic, we are responsive. So the environment and lifestyle our bodies kind of grow up in is going to affect how they respond and behave as we grow older. So it is kind of can very much prime our health as we grow older. That doesn't mean that people should think, well, I, you know, had an unhealthy childhood. There's nothing that can be done about it because again, we're constantly dynamic. So there are things that you can do later in life to adopt healthier lifestyles. that'll be beneficial. And it's not this kind of all or nothing thing, but yeah. No, and I'm, I'm so glad you made that point because, you know, it's interesting to me, I trained in the inner city and then uh, obviously but most of my time working in the suburbs. And what was interesting to me is, you know, 25 years ago, the patient populations that we were seeing are very different than they are now. And to echo what you stated that, you know, the degree of metabolic disease we're seeing in younger people and children and adolescents is concerning. We're seeing, you know, lifestyle mediated disease states in kids. And so they're presenting not just with type two diabetes, which is a lifestyle issue, they're having NOFLD, which is this non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, which typically you see in adults. We're seeing kids that have got, you know, borderline chronic kidney disease. They're having issues with their vision. You know, they have sleep apnea. They have mobility issues because they're carrying so much weight on their small frames and they're still growing. And so this is something that I think all of us should be concerned and genuinely looking into like, what can we do to make things better for this younger generation? Because as I tell my kids who are both teenagers, your generation is actually the first generation that has the potential to be less healthy than my generation. And that's something that's hard to wrap my head around as a clinician and as a parent that we're definitely heading in the wrong direction, but that doesn't mean that we can't make improvements. And if you grew up eating junk, that doesn't mean that has to be your destiny for the rest of your life. It's certainly hard to make those lifestyle changes, but they are absolutely worth it. And so, you know, when I'm thinking about the things that, you know, are incredibly helpful, not just the nutrition, as you mentioned, the intermittent fasting or caloric restriction, you mentioned exercise. And I think it's important to talk about the role of exercise, especially as we're getting older. So being physically active is important, 
but understanding that the role of sarcopenia, so you don't just lose muscle mass as you get older, lose strength. And you can actually like the strength piece. And that's why they talk about grip strength as being a prognostic indicator for health in general. Like when you go to the gym and they want you to do those goofy tests and you're like, why are you making me do this? Grip strength is important. I think about my parents and how, you know, they've always been super able-bodied. And now when I see them, they are sarcopenic, they are kind of shrinking and, you know, opening a jar for them, like the things that we, we just really give no thought to. So in terms of exercise, if we're trying to prevent sarcopenia, this muscle loss with aging, what are the things that you generally look into, or you think are most efficacious for helping to reverse this issue? Yeah. So, and sarcopenia can be a major issue for women or actually, and for individuals with obesity, right? There's sarcopenic obesity, which makes you even more prone because there's some kind of insulin resistance that might even drive it further. Um, But yeah, I think for women, you know, women have been kind of had less interest in kind of weight training, but we know that weight training or any kind of weight bearing exercises are really important, both for sarcopenia and for things like osteoporosis as women get older. And, you know, I think there's also this idea that, well, as you get older and frail exercise is maybe thought of as more dangerous, but actually they've shown that even the most frail and vulnerable older adults benefit from exercise. Obviously you might want to do it under supervision as you know, if you are at risk of falls or something else similar to that, but there's really no age in which exercise will not be beneficial. And again, as you get older, it does seem like more of this kind of strength training to make sure you're kind of slowing this decline in muscle mass and strength is really important. And, you know, cardiovascular exercise is important, I think as well, right? It improves our VO2 max, which is highly predictive of a lot of different health outcomes, but particularly as people tend to see wasting in their lower extremities, especially making sure that they're doing some work with weights. Today's podcast is sponsored by NutriSense. It combines cutting edge technology and human expertise. So you can see how your body responds to different types of nutrition, stress, exercise, sleep, and where you are in your menstrual cycle in real time. And by pairing a continuous glucose monitor with their app and expert nutritional guidance, NutriSense can help you reach your health goals. And the best part is it's not just a program where they send you the CGM and you have to figure it out on your own. Each subscription plan includes one month of free expert nutritionist support. Your nutritionist will work with you one-on-one interpreting your data and providing customized advice to help you reach your health goals. The last time I had my CGM on, my registered dietitian and I troubleshooted over some specific concerns that I had. And whether you're aiming to lose weight, stabilize your energy, or just feel better overall, NutriSense offers the guidance and support you need. And lasting sustainable change takes time and can be achieved through a longer term subscription. That's why I encourage my patients and clients to consider three, six, or 12-month subscriptions where it's actually less expensive and allows you to not only achieve your goals, but also to ensure that you stick to your healthy lifestyle for the long term. As I've mentioned before, I have found the CGMs I've used through NutriSense to be incredibly insightful, specifically to carbohydrate tolerance. I would not have known that plantains spiked my blood sugar without this information. It's also been hugely helpful for tailoring to workouts and sleep quality. And so for me, even though I am metabolically healthy, I find the insights to be particularly helpful to tailor my lifestyle changes to my blood sugar. Visit NutriSense.io slash EWP and use the code EWP for $30 off plus one month of free nutritionist support. Be sure to let them know you're a listener of the Everyday Wellness Podcast when they ask you how you heard about them. This is one of my favorite ways to take care of my health and one of my top recommendations for all of my patients and clients. At some point, we've all been sold a big fat lie. 
It's called the protein misconception. So starting in the 1980s, we all believed that more protein equated to more muscle growth. And I'm here to tell you it's a big misconception. This has a great deal to do that our body can only absorb protein that's broken down into smaller building blocks called amino acids. It doesn't matter if you're consuming 30 grams of protein or 300 grams of protein. If you don't have a sufficient supply of enzymes to digest the protein, your muscles will ultimately be unable to use these as vital building blocks. That's why it's crucial you take a high quality digestive enzyme. The one I trust and use myself is called Masszymes by Bi Optimizers. Masszymes is a full spectrum enzyme formula with more protease than any other commercially available product. With five different forms of protease. Plus, it contains all the other key enzymes you need for optimal digestion. If you're experiencing bloating, gas, or digestive distress, a contributing factor can be that your body is no longer producing as much digestive enzymes. And you can try Masszymes today, risk-free. They have a 365-day full money-back guarantee and is the gold standard in the industry. Go to biooptimizers.com slash Cynthia. That's B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com slash Cynthia and use promo code Cynthia10 for 10% off of any order. Again, that's promo code Cynthia10 for 10% off any order. Yeah, no, I, I can't agree with you more. And it's interesting just as a clinician, like going about my day-to-day life and seeing women in their 40s, 50s, 60s that are just skinny. And it's because they've lost all of their, a lot of their muscle mass. And if you think about muscle as this organ of longevity, and you look at muscle like a filet is young, this is terrible. I love beef, but we're just going to use beef as the example. If you look at filet, filet is mostly muscle versus A ribeye, although delicious, has a lot of fat distribution. And so that's what starts to accelerate north of 40 is that we start replacing muscle with fat. And fat, as you mentioned, is this kind of inflammatory organ. You mentioned sarcopenic obesity. I think a lot about how I had so many patients that couldn't get off a bedside commode in their 50s. And then you would have really frail 60, 70, 80 year olds. I had just as many non frail, but more often than not, these very frail people that I was afraid they wouldn't be able to get on the exam table, let alone get off. And so we don't want that to happen. And so it's interesting. My teenagers love to make fun of my husband and I, which I think is what every teenager does, but it's interesting to kind of listen to them and help them understand like, you know, your dad and I make a concerted effort to remain very active because a, we want to keep up with both of you, but number two, we don't want to be the parents that, you know, fall and break a hip when we're 55 years old, because I had patients like that, or they'd fall at 60. And we know that breaking a hip is a poor prognostic indicator. The other thing about exercise that I think is so important, and, and you aptly address this in the book as well, is that exercise helps our brains. It helps brain health. And I think if nothing else, the most important thing to me as I get older is that I don't lose my cognitive health. And I think, you know, this neurodegeneration that can be exacerbated by this muscle loss, this insulin resistance, this poor metabolic health, we want to remain sharp, right? We want to be able to contribute to society, to our families, to our loved ones, and not be the person in, you know, in the corner of a room who has some cognitive impairment and really can't interact with their loved ones. And we see so much of that now. Yeah. It's to me, it's like, yeah, like you said, one of the scariest kind of conditions of aging. It's, you know, you almost lose yourself, who you are, who you've always kind of identified as. And yeah, and unfortunately, there are no treatments right now. But exercise does actually seem like the biggest impact in terms of preventing neurodegeneration, both kind of what you might think of as kind of natural aging. So declining cognitive functioning, but also Alzheimer's disease and some of these more pathological declines as well. So yeah, there's a really fascinating study by Salvalita, who's at UCSF, where they took blood or plasma from exercise mice and put it in non-exercise mice and actually had cognitive benefits. So yeah, there's some kind of magic. We don't know necessarily what it is. They identified some proteins, but not clear. Those are the critical ones, but some kind of magic response to exercise that seems beneficial across our bodies, including our brains. Yet another reason to exercise as often as you can. 
Let's talk about sleep because I think sleep is elusive for people as they start getting older, whether it's declining levels of melatonin, sex hormones, all of which can impact sleep quality. Why are REM and deep sleep so helpful for not just our brains, but helpful for longevity, the aging process, and kind of hearing it from another individual, how important sleep is for improving our metabolic health. I think, you know, all these things feed into one another, but I keep trying to bring it back to the fact that, you know, these are habits, these are lifestyle choices that have a lot of net benefit if we are doing them properly and thoughtfully. Yeah. I think we don't know all of the actual mechanisms of how sleep is beneficial, but it is very clear that sleep is very critical to our health and making sure you're having uninterrupted sleep where you can have these kind of longer kind of REM sleep and you're not getting woken up and then having to go back through the sleep cycle is again in this kind of interrupted disrupted sleep. There's definitely kind of a cognitive benefit that people think maybe during deep sleep, you have this kind of washing of cerebral spinal fluid that kind of takes all the potential toxins out and kind of washes it. But yeah, even, you know, not to take it back to exercise, but it actually helps recovery from exercise. So as a runner, I know if I'm not sleeping well, I'm not recovering and running well the next day. So yeah, there are all these kind of mysterious, again, like exercise, mysterious benefits to sleep. And it is about getting, you don't want too much sleep, but also too little. So there's kind of this sweet spot that maybe is a little bit different for everyone and maybe different for men and women as well. But the sleep quality is kind of the critical thing that we forget about. We we look at our watch and say, oh, I went to bed at this time and woke up at this time. But really the question is how deep did you sleep during that time and not have to wake up and go do, you know, go to the bathroom or just kind of having these kind of insomnia episodes throughout the night. Yeah. I think it's, it's one of those things that we take sleep for granted until it becomes a problem. And then all of a sudden, like I always say, sleep is an art form at this stage of life. And I do look at my aura ring metrics every morning. I don't let it, you know, it usually confirms how I feel. So I don't look at it as it doesn't destroy my mood for the day, but it will validate like, oh, you really did have a crummy night of sleep because you were flying on an airplane or, you know, you didn't get enough sleep. You weren't able to get enough deep sleep. And the thing that I find really interesting is a lot of listeners are healthcare providers or they're EMS or people working shifts. What does the research show about the net impact of changing, you know, kind of shifting our chronobiologic needs based on our occupational schedule. How does that impact aging? Because I used to be a night shift worker in the ER many years ago. And I can tell you my colleagues that were 20 years older than me, they would talk about like just how they just never recover. It didn't matter how much they slept on their days off. They never felt rested. They got sick more often. So I would imagine there's also this interrelationship with immune function as well in terms of shifting those little biological clocks we have throughout our bodies to accommodate needing to be up when we should be asleep and vice versa. Yes. There's not studies necessarily with aging per se. I mean, there's some kind of circadian studies with aging, but there definitely seems to be health issues, primarily kind of metabolic issues that seem to arise or inflammation from kind of shift work or having this really disconnected circadian or disconnected from our natural circadian rhythm. I can't remember exactly. I do talk about it in the book, but I I don't remember off the top of my head. There were, they did do profiling of individuals who were shift workers. And it was, I think I'd have to go back, but yeah, definitely half of these kind of factors that have this kind of circadian response shifted, but the other half didn't. So they were kind of this at this asynchronous state, which, you know, physiologically wasn't how our bodies were meant to behave. And so I think if you're, if it's a short-term thing, right, you take a red eye or you have jet lag because you um, visited some other country, then it's not as big a deal. But if you're chronically kind of out of circadian rhythm, then there is, there tends to be a lot of kind of negative health benefits of that. Yeah, it makes complete sense. And I know that we get messages across social media all the time from nurses and doctors and PAs and EMS workers and cops and just people who have to work shift work, and they're trying to figure out how best to support their bodies. Now, one thing that you touched on, which 
having trained in inner city Baltimore really rang home for me talking about economic disparities and how this impacts the aging process. And so it is not surprising that those that are economically disadvantaged, that they could have accelerated aging, the role of ACE, so adverse childhood events. Can we at least kind of touch on this? Because I think it's really relevant for people to understand that, you know, depending on where you live can have a large net impact on how, you know, accelerated versus decelerated that aging process can be. Yeah. So there's really interesting data just looking at the link between zip code, the zip code you were born in and your life expectancy. And you can have zip codes that are, you know, 10 miles apart and have drastically different life expectancies. And really this comes down to these kind of social disparities and and differences in socioeconomic status, both childhood socioeconomic status. So what you had growing up, but also the socioeconomic status you experienced in adulthood. And some people have looked at people who switch and go from low to high or high to low. Um, And it, the early socioeconomic status does seem to kind of set a kind of precedent, but you can also, if you decline socioeconomic status later. And again, the exact mechanism of how this kind of gets under your skin and affects your biology isn't totally clear. And it's probably not one thing. So um, some of the major kind of hypotheses are that it is this kind of chronic stress. So if you live in, whether it's areas that are less safe, or you have more things like food insecurities, or just kind of all these everyday stressors that we think of, um, that this does really change you physiologically. It's associated with increased inflammation, and that this can drive the aging process. We also know just behaviors are very different. So lower socioeconomic areas tend to be more food deserts or have less availability of kind of all the foods that we were discussing as being beneficial and also less just availability of being able to be physically active outside. Um, So there are probably these kind of piling on of all these things that are affecting people. And then eventually it kind of this idea that it will wear and tear on your body. And there's something called the weathering hypothesis, which is just this idea that this constant low socioeconomic status will weather you over time. No, it makes complete sense. And as we're kind of wrapping up the conversation today, I would love to get your feedback, your perspective on things like rapamycin. You know, when I mentioned that we were connecting, this came, this question came up a lot. People are just curious, is there value in taking rapamycin? Can we talk about first what it is and what is the kind of prevailing ideas around the potential benefits it may confer? Yeah, so this is was actually discovered on Easter Island. So, and it was actually first used as a drug uh, for transplant patients. So to kind of prevent rejection, then people found that actually there seems to be some pro longevity benefits. So at least in animal models, they tend to live longer and healthier when they're on rapamycin. And so people have been very interested in this as a potential therapeutic for aging to slow the aging process. There isn't great data in humans yet on whether this is beneficial. I would say of all of the potential drugs and or supplements people are looking at, it's probably the one I'm most optimistic about. At the same time, just I'm personally not taking it. So I feel like I'd rather wait for the data to see. There are doing more studies now in in companion animals, so in dogs, to see if it actually shows beneficial effects in them. And people are starting clinical trials in humans. So I think I would say to people, we if you don't feel the need to take it immediately, you you know, wait five to 10 years, and I think we'll actually have a much better idea on potential benefits of it. No, that's really helpful. And lastly, senolytics, which are drugs that actually target these zombie cells and create a apoptosis. Thoughts on these? Are are we at a point where we're using these on humans, or is it again still we're still really looking at mo- animal based models for how these can impact the aging process? Yeah, so people are looking at senolytics in human clinical trials, but they're mostly in the context of 
fairly debilitating diseases. So this is not something that people are looking at in otherwise healthy individuals as a preventative for aging. And I think even people who work in the field of analytics would not recommend people take these voluntarily. So yeah, there are some trials in people with idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis or osteoarthritis. So far, the data has kind of been mixed on whether you get a benefit. But I think, you know, again, over time, we'll know. But whether this is something that you would take as a more preventative prophylactic is not right now, I would say nothing beats the lifestyle interventions. So yeah, I love that. It's a great way to end our conversation. Dr. Levine, please let my listeners know where to get your book, which I really enjoyed reading, how to connect with you on social media or learn more about your research. Yeah. So you can pick up True Age at probably most, try your brick and mortar first. Um, otherwise, you can also get it on Amazon or any kind of major bookstores. Uh, you can follow me. I'm on Twitter, I think at Dr. Morgan Levine and Instagram as well. And yeah. Thank you so much. It's been such a great conversation. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. If you love this podcast episode, please leave a rating and review, subscribe and tell a friend. Just as you carefully choose the cut of meat or freshness of produce that you cook at home, you should carefully choose chemical-free cookware that provides a healthy and safe cooking experience. The materials in 360 cookware are safe, sustainable, and of the highest quality. Their cookware is 100% free from any toxic chemicals as the company produces quality stainless steel cookware and bakeware without added chemicals, and all are manufactured in the United States. It's also the leading manufacturer that equips kitchens with cookware and bakeware that are free of all of the toxic chemicals and coatings, including PFAS, Teflon, and ceramic. And the best thing is that when used properly, the product's construction provides nonstick properties in a product that can be passed down through generations. Go to www.360cookware.com and use code CYNTHIA20 for 20% off your first order. Again, that's 360cookware.com and use code CYNTHIA20 for 20% off your first order. We've been using their products over the last several months and have really been pleased with not only the durability, but ease of cleanliness.